What would you say are some of the most common lies that are told in our culture today? I think what immediately jumps out to me is the student who says, my dog ate my homework, right? Like that's the oldest trick in the book. But I'm not talking about earth-shattering lies. This isn't uh, Bill Clinton saying, I didn't have sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. I'm not talking about the Soviet Union lying about sneaking missiles into Cuba. I'm talking about the little white lies that often go undetected. The, the sort of lies that are just kind of acceptable and commonplace and ingrained in our society. Like this. When someone tells you, I'm almost there. The reality is, I just left and I'll be there in 20 minutes, right? Or, I don't know, I didn't get it. It must have gone to my spam folder. Reality I deleted it. I don't know. I, my phone's been acting weird. I, no, reality is I didn't want to call you back. Or when somebody says, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The reality is I have no clue what you're talking about. Or when someone says, oh, man, I forgot to do that. The reality is I deliberately ignored you. Or when somebody says this, this happens in relationships, it's not you, it's me, Right? The reality is, let's be honest, it's you. <clears throat> when somebody asks you, how are you doing, and you say, I'm good, when oftentimes the reality is, my life is falling apart and I'm just trying to be polite. Or somebody asks you to do something and you say, yeah, I've got plans that day. The reality is, my schedule's wide open, I just didn't want to do that thing that you invited me to. Or when somebody says, yeah, yeah, that's interesting, interesting. The reality is, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not interesting, it's not funny, it's not exciting, it's not anything else like that, but I just want to be polite. Or when somebody says, yeah, it was great to see you, yeah, let, let's hang out soon. The reality is, I have no intentions of ever hanging out with you. Or when somebody says, your baby is so adorable, and the reality is, it looks like every other baby I've seen. Uh, research shows that 75% of people tell between zero and two lies every day. But get this, we are lied to between 10 and 200 times a day. When, when you think about the, the news that you receive, the things that you read, so, so that makes me think, what are the lies that you are currently believing? Okay, not so much the lies that you're telling, but what are the lies that you are believing Maybe you believe the lie that if I ignore it, it'll go away. Maybe you believe the lie that I'm too young to do that. I'm too old to be a part of that. Maybe you believe the lie that my worth is determined by my work, that my value is determined by what I produce, that, that my identity is not necessarily who I am, but it's more what I do. Maybe you believe the lie that I can do it all on my own. I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. I can do it all by myself. Maybe you believe the lie that, that God could never use someone like me. Not with my past. Not with the things that I've done. Maybe you believe the lie if I was only blank enough. If I was only smart enough, if, if I were only talented enough, if, if I were only uh, rich enough, or maybe you believe the lie that God really doesn't care about me. God doesn't really love me. 
See, you and I are in a war right now. Right now, there is a battle going on. And there is fighting, and there are weapons, and there is victory, and there is defeat. But it's not a geopolitical battle. You're not going to find nations on a map. You're not going to find updates about this war on the evening news or on your Twitter feed. In fact, it's an invisible war. It's a spiritual battle. Satan is at war against God. And the battle lines have been drawn. It is a battle between good and evil. And anyone who belongs to God is an enemy of Satan. And in this war, Satan's weapon of choice is lies. Lies, accusations, and temptations are what Satan uses to try to defeat you. And he launches an assault on our minds. Satan plays mind games with us. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. When Satan asked Eve, did God really say? Did God really say not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He planted a seed of doubt into Eve's mind. And he does the same to you and me today. This is what Jesus said about Satan in John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Satan works. His tactic is to deceive, to twist the truth, to, to plant lies in your minds. And so if Satan fights us with lies, how do we combat his attack? I don't know if you've ever watched some of these videos online, or maybe you watch National Geographic or Animal Planet, and you will see these big, vicious predators attack defenseless prey. And so you've got this little gazelle that's walking down to the water to get something to drink, and all of a sudden this giant crocodile jumps out of the water and just rips it to shreds. And you see that, and some of you are like, that's awesome. And others of you are like, man, that's horrible. And I'm thinking... That gazelle had no chance. I mean, what's it supposed to do? It's overmatched. It has no ability to fight back. In our battle against Satan, we are not defenseless. We are not defenseless prey. In fact, we battle Satan's lies with God's truth. We battle Satan's lies with God's truth. And there are two ways we use God's truth to battle against Satan's lies. The first is we remember what God has done. We remember what God has done in the gospel. We remember the truth of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about how we demolish every stronghold that goes up against God. And then in verse 5, he says, we are to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So you and I must actively and intentionally examine our thoughts and beliefs. Instead of letting our minds wander unchecked, instead of believing Satan's lies, we must capture and scrutinize every idea, 
every emotion, every impulse that enters into our consciousness. To take a thought captive means that we, we, we take it under control. We put it in a cage where it's contained. You see, so often our thoughts go unchecked. They run around all over the place in our minds. And we get anxious, and we get overwhelmed, and we get exhausted. And I think sometimes our thoughts can be a little bit like this. Check out this video. Cat, domestic short hair. He's available for adoption. He's pet of the week. Placer County Animal Shelter. He's a very loving cat. Hang on, please. Oh, yeah. Pinky. 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 Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got a wild cat on our hands. Pinky, settle down, bud. Careful, Cole. Careful. Oh, I get a catch pole. Somebody get a catch pole. Do your thoughts ever feel like that? Where they're just running around all over the place in your mind and you can't get it under control? Paul says that we're to take our thoughts captive. That we're to put them into a controlled environment. And the ultimate goal of capturing our thoughts is to make them obedient to Christ. We take those thoughts and we ask ourselves, what does the truth of the gospel say about this? For example, if the thought enters your mind, I'm worthless, no one cares about me, you ask yourself, what does the gospel of Jesus say? Well, the gospel says that you were created in the image of God. It says that you were God's valued possession, that you were literally God's workmanship. God loved you, and God thought you were valuable enough to send Jesus to die for you. And so you, you take that thought that I'm worthless, and what do you do? You make it obedient to Christ. Jeff Vanderstelt, he suggests practicing an act, exercise called from fruit to root in order to win the battle in your mind. So to become fluent in the gospel, if we're going to be formed by the gospel, there are four questions that we must ask. And it starts with, with this foundation, this, this root question, who is God? Who is God? And then we answer that question and we move secondly to what has God done? Okay, what, what has God done in the world? What has God done through the person of Jesus? And then we answer that and the third question is, who am I in light of God's work? In light of what God has done, who am I? What, what's my identity? And then the fourth question is, how shall I live in light of who I am? So what is my life going to produce because of who I am? And here's what I want you to realize, is everything that we do, every single thing we do is because of what we believe about these questions, whether you realize it or not. And so when you notice bad fruit in your life, when your thoughts lead you to undesired outcomes, what you do is you reverse the order of these questions. 
So we're going to put a diagram up on the screen. You also have it on the back of your sermon notes because this is really important. We want to make sure that, that we get what's going on here. So let's say there are some, some fruits that we're able to discern in our life. And let's say it's a desire for control or you're experiencing fear or you're experiencing anxiety. The root of that can be found in what we believe we are, our identity, what God has done, and who God is. And so when we confess our sins, we're not only confessing the wrong that we have done or the wrong that we have thought, but we're also confessing our unbelief and what God has done and ultimately who God is. And then when we repent, we follow the opposite path. So we address the root issue of our unbelief, and then we are ultimately able to produce good fruit. And church, this is the good fight of faith. It is the war of the mind. Remember, we must take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And along the way, the Holy Spirit teaches us and sinks the truth of God into our hearts. I want to make sure that we get this, so I want to take you through another example. So let's say that right now the fruit in your life is gossip. You are producing, you are experiencing gossip in your life, okay? So, so that's the fruit, that's at the top, then you move down. You have to ask yourself, why? Why am I gossiping? Well, maybe it's because you want people to know that you were wronged, and you believe that, that you deserve to be avenged, okay? So you've got a misplaced identity. Well, why? Well, it's because you believe that, that God doesn't really care about your sufferings, that God doesn't uh, care about what you're going through, okay? So that is a, that is a wrong belief in what God has done. Okay, well, well, why? Then you move down to the bottom here. Ultimately, at this moment, you are believing that God is unloving, right? So you have a wrong belief in who God is. So, so you, you confess that, you get down to the root, and repentance is, it's then believing what's true. So now you build up from root all the way to fruit. So the true belief in who God is, is I believe that God is loving. And, and then from there, you have a true belief in what God has done. I believe that God has condemned those who do evil, th those who reject Jesus. Or if the person who has wronged you is a believer, you believe that Jesus died on the cross to express God's justice against the sins of the person who has offended you. Okay, so now your identity in Christ, who you are, is I believe that God has brought justice for me and showing that he cares for me. God knows what happens to me. And then finally, the good fruit that you produce is now you're at a place where you can say, I don't need to tell others about how bad the person is that wronged me. I find peace in the love that God has for me. I can love my offender because God has loved me. I can forgive because I have been forgiven. You take the fruit back to the root, and then you build it back based on true belief. Tim Chester says that beneath every sin is a failure to believe a truth about God. And most of us, the problem is most of us, we don't go beyond the fruit to the root. We get so focused on behavior modification instead of gospel transformation. 
So we say things like, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, please forgive me, I'll try harder next time. And the problem is, we need to confess our sinful beliefs, the roots, the stuff below the surface that's motivating and producing those behaviors, the sins beneath the sins. The 2010 movie Inception is an action-packed thriller. It tells how a group of people enter into another person's dream, and they enter in dreams within dreams to plant an idea in this person's mind. But there's an early scene in the movie where one of the characters named Arthur, he explains to another, Sato, that it actually isn't difficult to plant ideas in other people's minds. Sato asks, If you can steal an idea from someone's mind, why can't you plant one there instead? And Arthur says, okay, here's me planting an idea in your head. I say to you, don't think about elephants. What are you thinking about? Elephants. And this simple concept helps explain why so many rigorous self-improvement strategies struggle to yield lasting results. Diets constantly remind people of what they're missing out on. Every time a former smoker puts a nicotine patch on their arm, they're reminded of what could be in their hands instead. And listen, these things can be great aids at cutting out unhealthy things. But by themselves, they're frustrating reminders of the thing that's being cut out. And you and I, we need more than behavior modification. We need gospel transformation. And that requires that we get down to the root. So we battle Satan's lies with God's truth by remembering what God has done. Second, we battle Satan's lies with God's truth by using the armor that God has given us. We use the armor that God has given us. In Ephesians 6, we find a powerful metaphor for spiritual warfare. Paul calls it the armor of God. And each element of this armor serves to protect our minds from the attacks of the enemy. We're going to begin reading in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. There are several pieces to this armor that are outlined here. First is the belt of truth. In Ephesians 6.14, Paul instructs us to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt would hold the armor together and it would provide stability. 
In guarding our minds, the belt of truth represents a commitment to living in God's truth. It means grounding our thoughts in the truth of God's Word. It means refusing to be swayed by the lies and deceptions of the enemy. And so by living out the truth, we guard our minds against falsehood. Next is the breastplate of righteousness. Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. In, in ancient warfare, the breastplate would protect the vital organs, including the heart. And so in guarding our minds, the breastplate of righteousness represents living a life of moral and spiritual integrity. When our minds are filled with righteous thoughts and righteous actions, we protect our hearts from contamination of sin and unrighteousness. Next is the shoes of the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6.15 speaks of having your feet fitted with the readiness that comes by the gospel of peace. So just as shoes provide stability and mobility, the gospel of peace keeps our minds grounded in the good news of Jesus. And when we understand and embrace the gospel, we experience peace with God. We're equipped to walk confidently through whatever life throws at us, guarding our minds against anxiety and fear. Next is the shield of faith. In Ephesians 6, verse 16, Paul describes the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith serves as a protective barrier for our minds. When we have faith in God's character and promise, we can deflect doubts and fears and lies that the enemy hurls at us. Faith guards our minds against skepticism and unbelief. Next is the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects the head. It's where our thoughts and our intellect reside. And so in guarding our minds, the helmet of salvation signifies the assurance of our salvation through Jesus we need to realize that we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And our battle against Satan, we are fighting against a defeated foe. Satan has already lost. Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan when he resurrected from the dead three days later. And so when Satan attacks us, he does so as a defeated foe. But the victory is, is not in question. The, the outcome is not hanging in the balance. Satan is a loser. And if we belong to Jesus, we are the victors. And when we firmly grasp the hope of our salvation, we protect our minds from doubts about our standing with God. We protect our mind about our doubts about our eternal destiny. Finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This offensive weapon allows us to counter the enemy's lies and deceptions with the truth of Scripture. When we study and internalize God's Word, we are equipped to refute the false teachings and thoughts that seek to infiltrate our minds. And here's what's remarkable. These aren't just weapons they use. They're a person we belong to. Because Jesus is the true and better armor of God. Jesus is our true armor, the belt of truth. Jesus is the truth. 
In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 says, It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. Shoes of the gospel of peace. Jesus is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2.14 says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The shield of faith. Jesus is the founder and the protector of our faith. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or founder and perfecter of faith. The helmet of salvation. Jesus is our salvation. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven to mankind by which we must be saved. And the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And so when Paul tells us in Romans 13 verse 14 to put on Christ, to clothe ourselves with Christ, we do so recognizing that Jesus is our true armor. And when we put on Christ, we are fully equipped to guard our minds against the enemy's attacks. When we put on the armor of God, we are putting on Jesus because He is our true armor. And that means if you're a Christian, you have everything. You have absolutely everything you need right now to combat Satan's lies. Because if you belong to Jesus, then you have the Spirit of Jesus living inside of you. Which means every time you're told a lie, every time you are tempted, you are not alone. Jesus is with you. And over 700 years before Jesus came to this earth, Isaiah prophesied about a Messiah who would come, the true and better embodiment of God's righteousness and salvation. Isaiah 11, verses 4 and 5 says, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Isaiah 59, verses 16 and 17. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. I never thought that I would close a sermon using an illustration from the movie Dumb and Dumber, yet here we are. If you've seen the movie, it's about 30 years old. It stars Jim Carrey, and Jeff Daniels, and their characters are Harry and Lloyd. And in one scene in the movie, they get on the back of a moped, and they travel all the way to Aspen, Colorado, in the middle of winter. And Harry doesn't have any gloves. He is freezing cold. His teeth are chattering, his hands are frozen, and after they finally get to their destination, Lloyd says, here, you can have my second pair of gloves. And Harry loses it. 
He's completely beside himself. He cannot believe that Lloyd had an extra pair of gloves the entire time and didn't give them to him. Here's what I want you to know this morning. In this spiritual battle that we're in, we are not defenseless. God has given us the gospel, so remember what he's done. He's given us the armor of God, so use it. We have Jesus, and he is all that we need. The tragedy is the person who has these weapons, but never uses them. It's like having a second pair of gloves the entire time. It only helps you if you use them. So use what God has given you. And the more you do this, the more you will find yourself transformed into the image of Jesus. As you remind yourself what God has done for you, the gospel forms you so that you see everything in your life through the lens of the gospel. Every lie that you are told, you filter that lie through the lens of the gospel. You take that thought captive and you make it obedient to Christ. And what you become is gospel fluent. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that in this battle against Satan, against the forces of evil, we are not defenseless. But God, you have given us the gospel as a reminder that Satan is defeated. We remember who you are and what you've done. We remember who we are. And God, that helps us to live lives of victory. God, thank you for the armor that you have given us. God, you have not just given us ideas. You've not just given us weapons. You have given us Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our Messiah. He is our Lord. He is our strength. He is our victory. He is worthy of all glory and honor. He is our salvation. And if there is anybody here today who does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray today they would realize that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day their life can be changed forever. God, help us to win the battle in our minds by remembering what you've done and using the armor you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.